Education Trends is brought to you by our friends at BMO Education. BMO works with higher education institutions to develop and implement income-based finance programs on their campuses. Want help designing an ISA program? BMO has you covered. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more about how BMO partners with and designs ISAs for world-class higher education institutions. And now, on to education trends. Success in life is all about the connections you make, and Julia Freeland Fisher believes that success in education works the same way. The Director of Education at the Clayton Christensen Institute and author of the book, Who You Know? Unlocking Innovations That Expand Students' Networks, Julia has spent years researching the best models for student success. For her, that means reorganizing the old education system so that it works across various ideas of time, space, and individual achievement. In this episode, Julia talks about the natural craving students have to connect with others and how those connections will fuel their success in future endeavors. We also discuss how sometimes finding the truth means you have to accept that you were wrong and how important flexibility is becoming in the education space. First of all, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit who you are, what you do, and what you do with the Clayton Christensen Institute. Sure. Hi, I am Julia Freeland Fisher. I'm the Director of Education Research at the Clayton Christensen Institute, which is a small, nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank that studies disruptive innovation in the public sector. So how did you get there? What what brought you there and, and what made you interested in joining? Yeah, it's a good question. So I started my career at a different nonprofit called New Schools Venture Fund, headquartered out in the Bay Area, which was a venture philanthropy and K-12 education, really focused on seeding and supporting entrepreneurship in K-12 schools. And that was really, you know, early on a baptism by fire and all things ed reform related. And while I was there, the Obama administration appointed Arnie Duncan, the Secretary of Education, who was very, by some measures, very entrepreneur friendly. And so where I had started off sort of thinking I would be working on the venture side, I ended up working a lot on sort of public policy and thinking about how the federal government in particular could encourage entrepreneurship. And that got me interested in the policy world. And I had the not totally informed idea that I would go to law school um, to study (laughs) public policy. So I did that at the end of which I was more sure than ever that I did not want to be an attorney. And really my heart (laughs) was in in this cross-section of education innovation. I happened to know people who knew Michael Horn, the co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute, and got to know him and his work and have been here for just over five years. So tell me a little bit about your background. You went to Yale Law School. I know you went to Princeton before that. Where did you grow up and what kind of education did you have as, as a young person? Like, What's some of your earliest memories of education and what was one of the moments that stuck out to you that made you think, wow, this is something I'm interested in? Sure. Yeah. So I grew up um, in Oakland, California. Before it was like edgy tech, <laughs> Silicon Valley, Oakland back in the day. And I went to Catholic school growing up and then eventually went to high school at a small high school called the College Preparatory School. Before all of that, though, I was just joking with someone at dinner last night about this. I went to a Montessori preschool and spent the better part of my three years in preschool 
tracing a 911 stencil and just like filling my little Montessori cubby with sheets of paper with the emergency contact number on it. So whatever that says about my personality, I'm not sure. But I, I, guess, I think I think that means you're always prepared, you know? <laughs> yes. Some would say neurotic, others would say always prepared. Um, so that's, that's my first memory. And I think my greatest memory, and this is a lot of what I sort of think about now in my research, was I had the, the great fortune of going to a high school that did a lot of small classes where you could really get to know your teachers well. And specifically, I had English teachers who were just phenomenal editors and taught me how to write and who I really had enduring relationships with. And so a lot of my research looks at not just the rise of technology in education, but how technology can actually unlock and strengthen our access to relationships in our lives, because I think they're part and parcel of learning and and developing. That's awesome. I went to a small Catholic school too. So I had the same kind of situation where I had, I got to know my teachers very well and it led to a really good education. I know that a lot of what you do is, is disruptive in the education space in that you want to make, make a system that's more student focused. So tell me a little bit about those goals and how you're going about achieving them. Sure. Yeah. So disruption is obviously a term that gets bandied about a lot, especially among entrepreneurs and, and tech types. But it turns out that it, it means something very specific. It's, it describes products or services that start off more affordable and more accessible and over time move up market to sort of disrupt industry incumbents. So the early Walkman that Sony put out was not particularly impressive compared to RCA tabletop radios at the time, but they were cheaper, they were more flexible, even teenagers could afford them. And over time, those electronics got better and better and disrupted the likes of RCA. And so when we say disrupt, a lot of times educators sort of look at us sideways and think of those disruptive kids at the back of the room. It has sort of not great connotations all the time in education. But we really are looking at with the rise of technology, do we have the potential to reorganize the system and particularly how the system treats variables like time and space to better reach each and every student? And that can be in the form of online learning and online assessments. It can be in the form of blended learning, meaning systems that use partly online and partly sort of face-to-face instruction. And it can be in the form of all of the other things that technology could unlock. Because I think The reality is you could have a highly disruptive play that was not necessarily totally student-centered. You could essentially digitize the worst of instruction and it would be cheaper, it would be more accessible, but it wouldn't get us necessarily to a student-centered system. And so a lot of our work is pointing to those technologies that are on the rise and also thinking about what's the system and model that needs to be wrapped around that technology to ensure that it's best for all students. So how do you do that? And and what kind of steps have you seen taken that have succeeded? What's failed? And what do you think is the future of making something like that work? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we spent a lot of time just sort of documenting innovations out there, looking at schools and colleges and other sort of learning environments that are leveraging technology. And when we look at those, we try to kind of codify what's different about this environment from a traditional classroom. How is the teacher spending time with the students differently? How are the students potentially able to access learning on their own timetable as opposed to waiting for the teacher, waiting for the rest of the class to catch up? And after documenting those, we look at these models through the lens of our our innovation theories, of this theory of disruptive innovation. And we try to say, okay, given everything we see, does this have the potential to scale? And if so, 
what are the sorts of policies and metrics that should be in place to make sure it scales with quality? And so like early days at the Institute, one of the first projects I did was looking at the combination of blended learning and what's called competency-based education, meaning students advance upon mastery in the state of New Hampshire, which if you don't know, is like the flagship state that has for over a decade tried to really move beyond the like all students move at lockstep pace through learning. They've tried to honor the fact that learning science actually tells us that that's not true at all. And we should be fundamentally redesigning systems. And what we saw there was a mixed bag, right? So we try to be honest about where innovations are and aren't thriving. And some schools have really, from the inside out, thrown out seat time and really designed individualized pathways. In other schools we saw there, frankly, the rhetoric was really far ahead of the reality. And so we try and shed light on those things, not only to sort of celebrate innovations, but to your point, also to point out where things may not be (laughs) as they are being reported or talked about um, in (laughs) sort of the mainstream ed reform conversation. What do you think is going to be the future? I think you see more and more that students are going back to school more. They're not looking for the standard traditional education. So what do you think would be an ideal higher ed or complete education experience for a person who who is not getting it usually from their four-year degree anymore? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a little bit loaded, right? <laughs> so I think that, like, let's just be very clear, the degree has yet to be disrupted. It still carries major currency. Degree holders still enjoy major sort of earning premiums. And so I, I think I caution against the sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater conversation that sort of traditional higher ed is dead. That said, I think what we are starting to see is a demand for flexibility around when and how students are learning. And at the same time, and this is less talked about, but I think equally as crucial, a appetite for connection and relationship in those learning environments. So we're not talking necessarily about a totally atomized, digitized future where individuals are sitting and learning in front of screens and not connecting with other people. Some of the most successful models that we've been tracking in higher ed, like Western Governors University, have a very deliberate structure around mentorship, have a very deliberate way to ensure that students are seen and heard and that their needs, whether they're academic or non-academic, are addressed along the way. And I think that that sort of, it's this combination of both flexibility and support that I think is sort of the model of the future and that will be more responsive to more types of learners, frankly, than even what you think of as a traditional college student on on a grassy quad. I know that there is obviously a lot of important elements to education and things are changing. What do you think are some of the, the most important truths about education that others maybe disagree with you on or or you would like to build upon? Sure, yeah. I love that you're really trying to put me in the hot seat here. <laughs> what are the most controversial ideas that you have? <laughs> I'll say two, and one I've alluded to already and the other's a little different. So one is that I think there is a tendency to look for efficiencies because everyone wants to bend the cost curve, particularly in higher education, right? We know that tuition hikes far outpace inflation. We know that students are graduating with historically just insane levels of debt. And so in search of efficiencies, I think that my big warning for the space is that we not short circuit relationships. And that may sound really like sort of 
obvious, but if you look at the rise of what many celebrate of sort of chatbots in education, and keep in mind, like I work at the Clayton Christensen Institute, I should be all about chatbots. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when I look at them, there's a very sort of deep-seated unintended consequence, which is that we could routinely underinvest in students' access to networks. And fast forward a few years, an estimated 50% of jobs come through personal connections. So every time that we use a chatbot instead of a human to support a student to or through his education, we are not filling that reservoir of relationships, social capital that could pay dividends down the line. And, and really, that sort of use of technology, I think, could perpetuate inequality. So how are we preserving and even investing in relationships as we look for efficiencies? I think the second thing is that a lot of people, ourselves included, are really focused on what workforce-aligned education could look like, meaning actually ensuring that students are learning the skills or what's referred to as sort of the competencies that they need to succeed in the workforce. And given that employers describe alarming rates of dissatisfaction, this is an increasingly urgent question. However, and this is sort of maybe Julia talking more than the Clayton Christensen Institute, but when I hear that conversation it verges on sort of like a, a future of a company town where employers are the sole definers of what learning ought to be. And I think that that's both dangerous for democracy, but it's also dangerous for optionality for students. Because if you're not sort of learning a broad enough swath of competencies, right, you are sort of tracking yourself into a narrow set of options in the labor market. And given how quickly the labor market is changing, that feels dangerous. So so those are my two, those are my verbose, wonky, provocative <laughs> points, but don't underinvest in relationships and pay attention to this like potential slide towards company town models of higher ed. What's one lesson that's really helped you in your career? What's, what's something that drives you or what's one kind of motto that you, you stick to whenever you're working? I mean, I think this is going to be super cheesy, but I think pay it forward. Like I, I, I just partly because my research has focused on the role that relationships play in access to opportunity. I think I have been so lucky to have worked with the people that I've worked with and to sort of have the role models that I've had. I think it's not just sort of <laughs> a duty, but an honor to pay that forward and to do that on younger people's behalf. So I think that would be at least one. <laughs> you talked about working with great people. Who are, who are some of the people who have mentored you and what lessons did they impart on you that, that you want to pay forward? Yeah, I mean, I'll name one obvious one, which is Clay Christensen, who I have the total honor of working with right now. And I think what draws me to him and what I so admire, and this is reflected in the fact that he is at his core a build, builder of theory. He's not just trying to sort of research facts. He's trying to come up with a construct to explain the world. Clay would rather be find the truth than be right. And I think that that leads to a constant seeking and a constant revision of our work. And I really have just learned by his example. So, so that's certainly one. I think others, this is going to be like a cliche of the yuppie that I am, but I, ha I have a yoga teacher who's just sort of taught me to listen to my intuition, which I think formal education can really beat out of us. But I've sort of rediscovered through her example. So, so those are a couple people I've been lucky enough to know. Have you had an experience where the truth meant that you were wrong? I mean, I think, so again, I'm going to keep harkening back to the research I've been doing, which was on 
on expanding students' network, expanding their access to social capital. And I think I went in really excited about technology. (laughs) And that's part of my day job. So it's like, of course, I was excited about technology. But I went in fairly naive as to how much it's not a technology problem. Rarely, if you look at the world, it's Mm -hmm. usually the model we could wrap around technology. It's usually the institutional designs. And so I I started out writing a book about technology and ended up writing a book about how could we design schools as more networked and really had to, I didn't let go of technology entirely, but really had to put technology in its place in the research and the writing. And at the front end, if you had asked me, I would have been sort of this like shiny person writing a tech book. And it, it, it didn't end up being that. Thankfully, I think it can't turn out even better because Hopefully. the things that we talk about are so important because like you said, it's a, it's about leveraging tech to expand who, who students know and how that they can help them land jobs and, and succeed in this ever-changing world. And I think you did a great job in the book to do that. So tell me a little bit about one thing or one trend that you're most excited about in the education space or just in general, you know, either way. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. So I'll keep on message here, uh, which is so I appreciate appreciate your your dedication to this. (laughs) No, well, I mean, I think there's a constant theme in what I'm talking about, partly because I'm I'm just in in the mix of this research, but but around technology. So I, I when I joined the institute five years ago, and we were really focused on the rise of online and blended learning, both in K twelve and higher ed. If you looked at that market, very understandably, there were sort of three big types of tools cropping up. One was content delivery tools. So online learning, the Coursera's, the MOOCs of the world, the Khan Academies. Mm -hmm. Another very closely related were online assessments and online testing was starting to become the norm in K-12 systems at the state level. So all of this sort of infrastructure and tools was cropping up around those. And the last was sort of understandably schools were starting to catch up to consumer technologies in, in the form of sort of productivity suites. So the percentage of schools that are now on Google Suite for Education has sort of rapidly grown over the past five years. So that was ed tech. And that was fine, but it was weird to me because the other thing that's been happening over the past 15 or so years is that communications technologies have become phenomenal compared to when you and I were younger. And yet nothing around that ed tech market five years ago that I was seeing was about connecting students. It was all about like shooting content at them or making schools more productive. And so I started to look at, well, what are the technologies connecting students? And I think this has become, since I started studying it three, four years ago, this has actually become a sector unto itself, whether it's online mentoring tools or online experts being ported into classroom over video or online internships, this sort of idea of unleashing latent social capital in students' lives is now an understood value proposition in a small but mighty pocket of EdTech. And shameless plug, we've started cataloging these at a website called whoyouknow.org just to get a sense of the contours of that market. So I think I think it's only the beginning. It's sort of where online learning was 10 years ago. And it's a really exciting development if you think about how it could take the chance out of chance encounters, how it could allow students to network into the knowledge economy in ways that right now might be out of reach otherwise. All right, let's let's end the interview with the lightning round. First question, what's a favorite book that you've read in the last year and why? Oh, you're going to catch me. I'm a chiclet 
like fiend, which is super embarrassing given what I do. Totally, fi- totally fine with me. I'm um, reading Crazy Rich Asians right oh, now. Oh, there you go. So I cheated and saw that movie, but a novel called Shotgun Love Songs, which is like chiclet but written by a man. Oh, interesting. How does he? Uh, how does he? write in a woman's voice how do you find he writes in both a woman's and a man's voice and I thought it was like incredibly impressive how he sort of spanned both so <laughs> highly recommend it to any chiclet fans out that's there. so funny because I saw the movie eighth grade and that was written by Bo Burnham a man but in a female perspective <laughs> and I thought he he nailed it he I was nailed so it. <laughs> so cool what about podcasts do you have any favorite podcasts anything in the queue at the moment this is going to be belying my like wonkiness, but because I just listened to like education news, I listen a lot to the Ed Search podcast, which covers sort of ed tech of, of all stripes. Listening to music, any albums, any favorite playlists? What, what gets you going? My husband and I love like Americana country. This is like all really personal. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to remember Ashley Monroe has a new album out. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Ashley Monroe. She's good. All right. Go-to snack. Guilty pleasure. What are you, what are you munching on? Oh, I would eat cheese for every meal. So oh it's not God. even a snack. It's just an entire meal. At the mission, we just started a Slack channel literally called Cheese, where we talk about cheese. So we should invite you to that. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, right up my alley, especially the soft cheese varietals. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Gruyere kind of girl. Really oh, like it. this <laughs> All right, last question. Help remind us why we do this. Why is education important? What's your favorite success story? And what would you want to leave the audience with? Oh, wow. So why is education important? I mean, I think that if you flip any problem on its head, at the root of it is human beings having access to knowledge and access to one another. And we've designed schools hopefully to deliver on that, but we've designed them in a way that is outdated and that has never worked for everyone, if that makes sense. It's worked for a few. And so I think, you know, my favorite success stories are there are schools today that have really tried to flip the script and put students at the center who are graduating them to college, but also creating like mini entrepreneurs who actually want to go out and solve problems in the world, which I didn't know a ton of those when I was 18, graduating high school. So I I just think that it's a basic human right. If we're not looking for ways to improve it, we have no hope hope of sort of improving society writ large. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it too. Can anybody find you anywhere? Do you want to give your social handles if you have any? Sure. (laughs) I am. I'm not that wonky. Uh, (laughs) I am at at Julia F. Freeland is my Twitter handle, two Fs. Yeah, and I would love to follow you and be followed. (laughs) Uh, Awesome. All right, Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Hillary. All right, talk to you soon. Bye.